Welcome again to Bethel Christian Fellowship. I'm Pastor Andrew, the uh, associate pastor, and um, today is the final sermon of 2019. Uh, Next week we're doing a testimony service, so hopefully you're thinking about that, and uh, like we mentioned, we're going to prioritize the the people who contact uh, Pastor Steve by email first. There might be time left over if you have something uh, spur of the moment, uh, something uh, that you haven't planned out, but we're going to prioritize the ones, uh, the people we, we've heard from first. So, uh, Also, uh, just wanted to remind you briefly, uh, part of our big All Nations Family of Churches uh, New Year's Eve celebration is uh, a baptism, and so if anyone uh, is thinking about bapti- baptism, you want to contact me as soon as possible, uh, the sooner the better, because we get together a few times and talk about the meaning of baptism first. So, All right. Well, uh, today we are um, wrapping up our series, Just Sex, Just Money, Just Power. And uh, this is part of our larger year of living justice. And, uh, you know, we're by having a sermon uh, a whole year on living justice, we're trying to reclaim this word that's become a buzzword. The word justice uh, is being used by everybody today, and everybody's claiming that they're promoting justice and fighting for justice and, and uh, upholding justice and, uh, and so on. Uh, but what does it actually mean biblically? And so this, is, this whole year has been a study of what does that word mean uh, biblically. You know, um, I, I may have mentioned this before, uh, early on when we decided to do this year of living justice, we had some people say, I, I don't think you should do that. That word justice, it's too much of a buzzword. Uh, but uh, then, I, then, you know, I thought about it and like, well, yeah, but what if like back in the 60s when people were misusing the word love, what if we had decided, well, let's not use the word love anymore because a bunch of people are misusing that. Uh, that, wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't be so good. We'd have to cut out big chunks of the Bible. We'd also have to cut out big chunks of the Bible if we threw away the word justice. So better to reclaim the word than uh, try to, um, you know, just ignore it or, or, or avoid it. Um, so, uh, uh, the end of the year, this, this fall, what we've been doing is we've been focusing on these three areas, sex, money, and power, because uh, these are three areas where uh, people, including Christians, have somehow been spreading injustice instead of justice. And so it's worth our time to take a deeper look into the areas of sex, money, and power. And today is our, our final series, final sermon in that uh, series. So, uh, specifically, the way that we spread injustice is that we turn these things into idols. So, this is a, a picture of what's called a, it's an ancient Near Eastern ziggurat. It was a, a pyramid. These pyramids aren't as uh, big as the Egyptian pyramids, but what uh, the people would do in the ancient world is they would set an idol, uh, usually a statue, at the very pinnacle of the pyramid, right at the top of these stairs, and uh, people would, the priests would uh, ascend the stairs, sort of, uh, in their mind, go up into heaven and meet with the idol. And uh, so it's sort of the ultimate symbol of the idolatry that the Bible speaks so much against in Scripture. And uh, what we've all done, and Christians included, is we have turned these three things into idols. Uh, instead of God being the king of our lives, being in charge, being the one who provides, we've looked to these things 
as our king, as our master, as our Lord. Uh, so instead of looking to God to be our source of love and pleasure, we've looked to sex to be our source of love and pleasure. Instead of uh, looking to God to be our provider, we've looked to money to um, uh, provide for us. And instead of looking to God and his power uh, in our lives and over our lives, we have uh, instead turned money into a power. Sorry, we've turned power into an idol. And uh, so today, we're just focusing on power. And you know, power, as we've mentioned before, power is complicated, right? Power, you and I need power to get things done. We need power to accomplish things. We need power just to breathe. We need power to get through our day. We need power to do our jobs. We need power to raise our kids. We need power to get through school. We, we need power, and we need enough of it that we can accomplish things well. And yet, we somehow are continually abusing and misusing power in one way or another. Just think about all the different ways that power preoccupies your time and your energy. Think of all the ways that we jockey for power in some kind of situation. Think of all the ways that we negotiate for power in some way or another. Think of all the ways that we kind of navigate through life thinking about power. Um, All the ways we try to gain more of it, gain an edge over those we're competing with, gain an edge over uh, other people, get just a little bit more power. Um, Think of all the ways that we fear other people abusing power and, and we're the recipients of that abuse. And all the ways, think of how that occupies so much of our time, how we want to somehow prevent other people from getting too much power over us. And, uh, and, and if they do, if we feel like they do have too much power of, over us, all the ways that we try to kind of sneak around that and try to avoid that and try to manage that and try to deal with that. Uh, think of how much of your day and your energy and your mind is preoccupied by power in some way or another, and how much we built our lives around the fear of other people gaining power. Uh, you know, there's so many examples of this. Uh, politics is a great example. If, if you listen to the rhetoric of both sides of the political spectrum here in America, both sides appeal to fear that the other side is going to get too much power over us. Um, uh, Democrats have a doomsday scenario, and it's that the Republicans take over. Republicans have a doomsday scenario, and it's that the Democrats take over. Think, think of how we, uh, and, and, and we all fall for it, or most of us fall for that. Like, oh no, the Republicans are going to take over. Oh no, the Democrats are going to take over. And, and so uh, in that fear, because of that fear, that ends up uh, controlling so much of our time and energy and how we do life and how we do politics. Think of the power dynamics in a, in a parent-child relationship. Has anybody ever had a toddler? <clears throat> you know what a power struggle is, okay? You know what a power struggle is. Um, but it's not just toddlers we power struggle with. Um, parents and children and their children and offspring are, are vying for power all the way through, all the way to the end in some form or another, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle. Um, Think about the power dynamics in an employer-employee relationship. Whichever side you're on, a lot of us end up being on both in in one time or another in our lives. Think of all the ways that uh, power is kind of the central issue. Or 
uh, a teacher and student relationship. I mean, there's definitely, definitely power dynamics going on there. Uh, what about even neighbors? You think neighbors, oh, that's such a, a neutral thing. But even, I, like, I've noticed this with, with neighbors, you know, who, who was the one that uh, shoveled the sort of the edge of the snow last? You know, like, did, did, did you shovel just, just a little bit onto their side just to, sh- to show them that you were, uh, you were being kind? Well, now it's their turn to shovel. And, and anyway, just all these little, t- and the neighbor stuff is just, it, it can get so subtle, but there's still power there. Or even friends, okay? Even friendships often have power dynamics in one way or another. Marriages, marriages. There's definitely power dynamics in marriages. Uh, And sometimes they're subtle. Sometimes uh, they're kind of sneaky. Sometimes you don't even notice them. Sometimes nobody outside of the relationship can notice them, but they're there. And of course, uh, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we brought up the whole issue of of when uh, those power dynamics in a marriage go really sour and, and it turns into domestic abuse. Um, some of the, uh, a few weeks ago, I read some real stories of people who uh, experienced domestic abuse, and uh, a lot of those people are people in the church, inside the church, a church just like ours. Um, and, uh, and so domestic abuse doesn't just happen out there to those people. Uh, it happens even inside the church, as we talked about uh, recently. Uh, by the way, um, just as an aside, uh, the church can, part of the job of the church is to be there for those situations, uh, both to help the abused person escape and rebuild their lives, um, also to be there for the abuser, to help the abuser repent of idolatry and also to rebuild their lives. So the church can be there in, in, in many ways to help with that situation. But it's a, it's a real thing. All go, and it all goes down to this idolization of power. Remember, an idol is anything we look to that's not God for anything that we need or want in our lives. And an, anything could be an idol, but power has definitely become a real thing. And, and, and in America, see, for most of history, for most of the rest of the world, most, the vast majority of people have um, the, the idea of having any kind of earthly power just hasn't been an option. But here in America, we have at least there's, there's sort of a hope that we could gain some, kind, some measure of power in this life. And, uh, and so, uh, so now this idolatry that maybe would more easily infect uh, a tyrant or a ruler or someone with a lot of wealth now could infect anybody here in America, because all of us have some access to a little bit of power, at least. And we idolize it either by pursuing the power, more of it, or we idolize it by trying to protect ourselves from it and from the power in other people's lives. Um, So, how do we not idolize this power? How, How do we not uh, how, how do we tear down this power? How do we, how do, we do what, what Jesus did, turn the pyramid upside down and descend to the bottom along with Jesus? We have looked in the last two weeks that Jesus both gave up his power, he lost his power at several significant points, first by becoming one of us, by becoming a human, and he kept doing that throughout his life, and then he lost the ultimate power when he lost his life and gave up his life to save us from our sins. Um, and he also, at many 
cases limited his power. Um, he refrained from using the full brunt of his power. There was a time when he was being arrested, and the, the disciples said, um, you know, uh, that, or they were sort of amazed that this was happening, and, and Jesus, you know, said he acknowledged he could call down legions of angels right there and then, but he didn't. He limited his power. Um, and there were other times when the disciples said uh, to Jesus, well, those people aren't listening to us. You know, should we call down fire on them? And uh, Jesus rebuked them, and he limited his power. So Jesus, on a number of occasions, limited or even lost his power. And as we've been talking about, Advent and Christmas is the story of Jesus limiting and losing his power. It's a story of Jesus in emptying himself, not counting equality with God something to be grasped, but actually lowering himself and becoming one of us. And then going even further in this life, he, he, he could have become emperor, but he didn't. He, instead, he became a poor carpenter with no worldly influence. And then he actually gave himself over to, to die the most shameful death that only criminals died when he died on the cross. So, um, just a quick review of where we've been. Um, how, we, uh, the, a few weeks ago we asked the question, how, how do we do this? How do we follow Jesus to the bottom? Uh, and we took a look at uh, this, the summary that we, we do it by imitating Christ's humility. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, starting verse 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So he's describing this humility of limiting or losing your power. And it's all done, according to verse 5, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. So Paul here is calling us to imitate Jesus's humility. So that's, that's part of it, how we do it. And then last week, Pastor Steve asked this really important question, uh, why? Why even do it in the first place? Which, uh, and we really need to answer that if we're going to move on. And uh, so he had some great answers for us. First of all, it's uh, in order to follow Jesus. We're called to it. Jesus called us to it. Jesus commanded us. Paul c- called us to it. Um, and Pastor Steve reminded us of the story of Jesus's uh, humility when he washed the disciples' feet. You probably already know this, but when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, that was the behavior of the lowest servant in the household. Every well-to-do Roman household or Greek household or Hebrew household uh, had a collection of servants, the very lowest servant, the same servant who would be cleaning out the toilets. uh, That was the servant that would wash the feet of the guests when they came in. Jesus took the place of the lowest servant when he washed his disciples' feet. And then he called us to do the same thing. He called us to wash each other's feet. And then, of course, his, his ultimate humility when he uh, died on the cross. Pastor Steve reminded us last week that we must suffer and we must surrender and suffer anyways. All of us are going to be dealing with the surrender of our power. Uh, if you, uh, if, certainly, if at no other time at the moment of your death, uh, you're going to be dealing with the surrender of your power. And, and, and I, last I heard, um, death had a 100% success rate. Uh, in, in other words, every single person in this room is going to die, all right? All of you, everybody here, every one of us is going to have to deal with death, and death is sort of the ultimate surrender of power. 
Uh, but, but if we're following Jesus, uh, we're all going to be dealing with surrender of power throughout our whole lives, all right? Um, and uh, we're all going to be suffering anyway. So better to do it with Jesus, after Jesus, in imitation of Jesus. And then uh, Pastor Steve reminded us last week that the way down is the way up. The way down is the way, is, it's the only way up. In fact, Jesus said, if you, whoever wants to be first, what do you have to do? You have to be last. You have to be the servant of all, all right? Jesus said, so, so there, there is a way up in the kingdom of God, but it's down. You have to go down to get up. All right, so for our final message, what we're going to do now is we're going we're gonna to do a deep dive into where we started this series on just power. We're going to look into the book of Philippians. So uh, I, I sent something, uh, emailed something home uh, and uh, asked everybody to read the book of Philippians. I'm sure at least two of you did that. So at least two of you are going to be getting stuff out of the sermon. Um, but uh, if you could open up your book, it's, it's, it's going to be better. We're going to kind of be flipping all over the place, so it actually goes faster if you have a physical Bible in front of you. You can use a digital Bible, of course, but then, you know, I know you also check Facebook and other stuff at the same time, but it, it's slower It's slower if you uh, have a digital Bible. So if, if, uh, if you could, if you've got one near you, try to open up a physical Bible, and we're going to look at that um, uh, we're going we're gonna to go all the way. We're just going to dig really deep into the book of Philippians. So if everyone could take a minute. I love that sound of the pages. Whether the church where I first got saved, I, when, when, people, when things started getting really heated up, they would say, now we're really having church. Now we're having church. So when I hear the pages turning, like, now we're having church. All right. Doing church. All right. So, all right. Um, let's get into this. All right, so, um, so Paul, uh, the first thing I want to say uh, that I noticed when I was reading through Philippians about Paul's view of power is that Paul believed that we can imitate Christ's humility. There's a lot of people, when, when, you, when they hear, like, you should imitate Christ or Jesus did that, that, their first response is, well, that was Jesus. He was God. Okay, now that's a, that's a, you can use that excuse for things like walking on water, but you don't get to use that excuse for things that are actually commanded, where we're actually commanded to imitate him. Okay, does that make sense? Um, uh, so, um, so Paul, crazy Paul, if you read any of his stuff, you realize this guy is crazy, crazy in a good way. Crazy Paul thought that we can imitate Christ in his humility. Um, so I'm, I, we're going to just zoom through a whole bunch of verses. In uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 9 through 11, Paul prays this prayer expecting that the Philippians are uh, going to live this way. And in verse 11, he, he says that they are, were filled with the fruit of righteousness. Um, and so this fruit of righteousness, he's, part of what he's describing is this ability to live in humility in imitation of Christ. So uh, so right there. And then uh, go on with me to verse 27, still in chapter 1. Uh, Paul writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And uh, if you look at the verses around that, if you took time to read that, you would see that when he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, he is including a description of humility, uh, imitating Christ's humility. So, um, so right there, Paul thought that we could 
do that. And and uh, and right before that, Paul is describing uh, how, or sorry, right after that, Paul is describing how uh, the Philippians were going to face a lot of opposition. And Paul is saying, whatever happens, including opposition, including when people are opposing your faith, live this way, conduct your lives in a manner worthy of Christ. Um, skip with me to uh, chapter 2, verses um, 14 through uh, uh, 15, Pastor Steve referenced this uh, a minute ago. He said his home was just a bastion of this the all week. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. So Paul is expecting that the Philippians can actually live in a way that they're shining like stars. There's something about their life that so stands out in such bold relief to how the people in the world are living their lives that it's, it's, it's like the stars in the night sky. Um, I don't know when the last time was you actually got away from the city and the, the light pollution and you saw the stars and how they stand out. That's how Paul thinks we could live our lives, that, they, that we can actually shine like stars. Um, Turn with me to chapter 3, verse 15. Um, uh, Paul says this really interesting thing. Uh, In verse 15, he says, um, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And and if you read the context, Paul here is, again, describing how we conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel, how we uh, live in imitation of Christ, including his humility. So so Paul is saying, if, if if you're mature... That means you actually can adopt this way of life, including Christ's uh, humility. So, Paul, oh, I'm going to go back. So, Paul thought that um, it is actually possible to live this way. Second thing I want to notice about Paul, and we're going to go back to chapter one with me. Paul cites his own example, especially and particularly in regard to power. Not only did Jesus limit his power and lose his power. uh, Paul also limited his power and lost his power on numerous occasions. First of all, in chapter 1, verses 12, Paul is describing his own imprisonment, okay? He's describing his own imprisonment in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Um, and he even talks about his chains, Now, imprisonment is one of the most disempowering things that can possibly happen to anybody. Um, You lose some of your civil rights, you lose your voice in the world, you lose your capacity to earn money, you lose lose all kinds of things when you are incarcerated. Paul knew and understood uh, this imprisonment because he had lived it out. But he wasn't discouraged, he had a great attitude about it because, according to Paul, It turned out for the advance of the gospel. Something about his imprisonment actually helped the gospel advance. So even though his power was limited because of his imprisonment, Paul was not discouraged. Paul was not discouraged at all because of that. So um, verse 15 through 18, Paul describes a very interesting situation that there were uh, other preachers, they were preaching Christ, but they were doing it out of envy and rivalry. They were wrongly motivated to preach Christ. Now, um, I don't know about you, but as a preacher, as a budding preacher, um, one of the most frustrating things is when I hear or see uh, preachers who are preaching bad stuff. 
Um, I especially see it on TV with the prosperity gospel and the health and wealth stuff and just blab it and grab it and you can have the fancy car and all the money and all that stuff. It makes me so mad. Now, it makes me mad mainly because it's unbiblical and and also it's spreading lies and uh, ruining people's lives and all that. But it also, it makes me look bad. It it, it, it actually limits my power because when people find out I'm a, I'm a pastor or a preacher, they're like, oh, I mean, like, those people on TV? Like, those people? Uh, no, 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 I'm nothing like that. And they're like, oh. So I'm immediately dealing with this cynicism uh, uh, because they know about the people who are falsely motivated. If I had been Paul and there were these people who were preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, I would be so ticked off. Paul does not see this limitation of his power as a hindrance to the gospel. In fact, he says, even though they're preaching it out of selfish ambition and not sincerely, according to verse 17, he says that it's whatever happens, the, the, the gospel is being preached. So he's actually excited about that. Now, that blows me away, but this is another limitation of power for Paul, and it's not bothering him. All right? Uh, another example, uh, Still in chapter 1, verse 20, uh, starting in verse 20 through 23, Paul references the ultimate surrender of power, his own death. He has a sense it's coming soon, um, uh, he, but he doesn't see that as a hindrance either. He's actually excited about it because he, he knows he's going to go and see Jesus. And that, to him, is, is, is the ultimate prize. So, so that limit of his power doesn't bother him. So Paul wasn't worried about his imprisonment, his, the, limiting his power. He wasn't worried about false preachers limiting his power. He wasn't even worried about his own death. Um, okay, look with me ahead to a couple chapters. Chapter 3, um, verses 5 through 7, uh, Paul lists here for us some things that gave him real social capital or real power in this life. Um, he lists uh, in chapter 3, starting in uh, verse 5, um, he says, uh, He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Um, so now all these things gave him a measure of social status that gave him real power, at least in the Jewish world. Uh, if we remember it, during Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' accusations of the Pharisees was that they, they used their holiness, their apparent holiness, they used that to gain power and influence in society. And people were so admired their power and influence, they were like, sure, yeah, you be at the head of the table. You will make sure, uh, you know, they, they, they gave the Pharisees power and status because they so admired their holiness. So Paul outshone all those other Pharisees in how holy he was, apparently, um, and yet, what does it say in verse 7? But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. So Paul actually was okay giving up all that stuff that gave him status in the Jewish world, that gave him a real measure of power, a real sort of purchasing power, social capital. He was ready to give that up. He considered it a loss. Um, if we go on in verse 8 there, there's another word Paul uses. He says, uh, I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. 
Now, in ancient Greek, that word is an actually untranslatable word. It's such a bad word. If you take the worst word you know that also means rubbish or excrement, which I won't say from the pulpit, but you all know what word I'm talking about, you take that word and you multiply it by about 10, that's how bad that word was. Paul used that word when he was describing what he considered all that social status in comparison to something better. He, he was okay with the loss of it, um, uh, he was the, and, and the loss of his power. Move on with me to chapter 4 here. Uh, chapter 4, verse um, uh, 11 through 12, Paul describes some very disempowered moments in his life. Um, he says uh, in uh, verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, if you've ever experienced hunger in your life, and I don't just mean a little grumbly tumbly because the preacher's going on too long on Sunday. I mean, I mean like actual hunger where you didn't know where your next meal was coming from. And I know some in this room have, have experienced that. You are incredibly, you feel very disempowered when you are having that experience of hunger. And of course, many of us have had the experience of living in need, and we know how disempowering that is. You can't just pop over to Target and get what you need because uh, you don't have the money. Um, that is incredibly disempowering when you are, are materially poor. But Paul said that he had some kind of sense of contentment in the middle of that, of, of, of not having things and actually being hungry. Paul actually had some sense of contentment. And he even boasts in verse 13 of being able to do everything. In verse 13, he says he's, he's able to do, he can do everything. So um, somehow his limit, the limit of his power did not bother him. And look at me, look with me briefly, chapter 3, verse 17. Paul says this really interesting thing that he actually um, invites the rest of us to follow his example uh, of living this way. So Paul cites his own example, and then he actually thinks that we can follow that same example. We can follow the example of Christ, and we can follow the example of Paul in limiting or losing our power. So, Paul, how did you do it, buddy? How did you do it? Uh, In chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says this interesting thing. Uh, he, he, he gives us the secret of how he lived in this contentment. In chapter 1, verse 11, he, when he describes being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which includes the capacity to live in humility, um, he says that it's through Jesus Christ. He says it's through Jesus Christ. And then that verse I just quoted when he says, I can do everything, In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Through him who gives me strength. So the answer, Paul's secret of living in contentment, Paul's secret for limiting or losing his power, his secret every time 
was that it was through Christ. Now, that begs the question, what, what, what does that mean through Christ? What on earth could that mean through Christ? Well, the first thing it means, I didn't write this for you up on the, on the um, uh, PowerPoint, but if you look with me in um, chapter 3, verse 21, uh, actually verse, uh, verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who... By the power, there's that power issue again, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So the first part of the secret was that Paul was okay giving up his power or limiting his power because he believed there was someone else who had more power, in fact, so much power that according to verse 21, he had the power to bring everything under his control. Now, this is important, you guys. Thank you for the hallelujah. Everyone should be saying hallelujah because what this means is that the things that, the the fears that Remember earlier I said all the different ways that we're so afraid the other people are going to have power over us, whether it's the other political party or the other person or the neighbor or our spouse. We're so afraid of all the ways that other people are going to have power over us, and we live in that fear. There is someone more powerful than that spouse, that friend, that neighbor, that employer, that employee, that child, that parent, that teacher, that student, that political party. There's someone with more power, and that that is they have enough power to bring everything under their control. That person is Jesus Christ. So Christians should be able to walk through life with a kind of a confidence that somebody, somebody has everything under their control, and if something doesn't look like it's under his control yet, we just have to wait around because God will bring that thing under his control. Okay? God has that power. Amen. Pastor Steve referenced this last week when he was uh, talking about how when Jesus uh, did the thing that the humblest servant did, remember, he, he took off his clothes, put a towel around his waist, washed his disciples' feet. The scripture there says that Jesus knew where he'd come from. He knew where he was going, okay? Jesus had pure confidence in his father, his father's power, when he limited his own power. Okay, Paul had confidence in Jesus' power when he limited his power. Okay, so that's the first part of what it means when Scripture, when, when Paul has this secret of contentment. Paul's secret of contentment started out with this confidence that Jesus has power over everything, and he can bring it all under his control. So, so Christians, you and I don't need to be fretting and, oh no, that political party is going to gain dominance. Oh, no, that neighbor is gonna, has a lien on my property. Oh, no, that uh, Aunt Matilda bought more expensive gifts than I did for Christmas, and now I'm going to owe her. Um, 
yeah, yeah, it, um, yeah, a whole range of different power that we worry about. We don't need to live in fear of the other having more power than us. This, this is what gave the martyrs. Did anyone ever wonder what motivated a martyr to be okay? To be, there, there are stories of martyrs singing with joy as they're being butchered to death. There's stories of uh, Christian martyrs who being dismembered or roasted alive or all kinds of horrible things happening to them while they were singing and glory, glorifying God. And they could do it because they were confident in the one who has power to bring everything under his control. Okay? There's a second part of this secret. And Paul says it in... Chapter 3, verse 14, I'm going to read that. Paul says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul believed that this Jesus, for whom he was ready to lose everything, he believed that this Jesus was his prize. Now, I got to unpack this a little bit, because when I say prize, I don't mean just the um, uh, participation award that you got in, uh, you know, your year in uh, trying out soccer or something like that when you were a kid. Everyone gets a participation award. I don't just mean that, okay? That's, that would be belittling this. Uh, does any, has anyone ever read about or learned about those Olympic athletes. I, I don't just mean the Olympic athletes who, who are amazing and they get to the Olympics. I mean the Olympic athletes who get the gold. Anyone ever wondered, or everyone ever learned about the kind of self-discipline they go through to get the gold? Okay? The, the, the willingness to limit their choices, limit their experiences. They're almost all young people, and so, of course, they have all this stuff to live for. There's all these parties they could go through. There's all this pizza they could eat. There's all this um, drinking that they could do that all their peers are doing and apparently not having any consequences. And uh, these young people, these Olympic gold athletes are limiting all of that because there's a prize they're going for. And that prize is bigger and it's better than all of those experiences they're missing out on. Okay? That's how it worked for Paul. Paul was willing to count all that stuff a loss, all that stuff rubbish, the word I can't even accurately translate because that would be unacceptable. Paul is willing to count all of that stuff that, that would have given him power to count it rubbish because he had a prize. He had a prize that was bigger and better than everything else. A prize, if it's really a prize, not just your participation award, but a prize, a prize will move you to any sacrifice, no matter how drastic. The prize of Christ moved the martyrs of the Christian faith, moved them to give up their lives. They were okay giving up their lives because they had a prize that was better than every thing else. So the, the secret of Paul's contentment was, first of all, to regard Jesus as the one who had power to bring everything under his control. And second of all, was that he knew Jesus himself was the ultimate prize. 
He even says in, in, in verse 8, he, he puts it this way. And, and it's, like, it's like Paul's tripping over himself with trying to figure out the words to say because the words are, are, are almost too big. They're escaping him. And in, uh, in verse 8, he says, What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Surpassing greatness. That's like bad English. Any English teacher would tell you, don't write like that. You're using hyperbole and you're just using all these extra words you don't need to use. Paul was using them because he, couldn't even, he didn't even have words to describe how more wonderful the prize of Jesus Christ was than anything else. So my question for you is, is Jesus your prize? The first part of the question is, do you really believe Jesus can bring all things under control? He really has the power to bring everything under control. And secondly, is he really your prize? Some of you wonder, why is it so hard for me to give this up or that up? Or why is it so hard for me to, to, to actually live this way? Or well, why do I keep stumbling in this area? i got to keep asking the question, is Jesus really your prize? The Olympic athletes, they're happy to forego sweets and desserts and parties and alcohol and everything else because they're going for that big prize. If Jesus is your prize, are you willing to give up everything for him? This is the secret of giving up that power. It's the secret of limiting your power. This is, the, this is how we bring the idol of power down, is we exalt the prize of Jesus Christ higher than that power. You think, oh, power is going to get me this. Jesus is going to get you more. You say, oh, power is going to help me do this. Jesus is going to help you more. Oh, power is going to make me feel good, and it's going to make me feel content, and it's going to make me feel like I, I, can, I can do everything. You can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. All the things you think you can get through power, all of it, and better, comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus is your real prize. Is he your, is he your prize? There's some people this morning who've never made Jesus your prize in the first, the first place. Now, you may have acknowledged all the correct doctrines, all the correct beliefs about him. You may have um, mentally assented to them, but he's not yet your prize. Today's the day to make him your prize. What better time than Christmas when we celebrate the God who was so confident, Jesus who was so confident in his Father's power, Jesus is willing to humble himself, become nothing for you and for me, become a poor uh, child who had nothing, no material wealth to speak of, no name to speak of, no power to purchase anything, no anything in this life, a poor, vulnerable, at-risk child, threatened even days after his birth by, the, by, the, by the, the king of Judah, had to flee as a refugee into a foreign country. Jesus was willing to be born into that kind of situation because he had so much confidence in his father's power. Jesus was willing to... That's what Christmas is all about, you guys. I've said this many times. The thing about Christmas is we're not supposed to look at the manger scene and say, ooh, what a cute baby, how adorable. 
we're supposed to look at that and be struck and shocked that this King of kings and Lord of lords humbled himself, became one of us for you and for me. That's, what, that's what's supposed to strike you about Christmas. That's what's supposed to grab a hold of your affections and shake you to the core. Because God did that for you and for me. Is he your prize? Is he your prize? Are you ready to give up the idol of power, along with all the other idols, and say, he is my prize? If you've never done that, this is the morning to do that. And some of us, probably most of us, need to renew our commitment to embrace him as our prize. To say, God, I I have let some other things move up in my, my, uh, my prize category. I've let some other things get higher than you lately. But it's time to bring them back down again. It's time to replace Jesus there as our prize and say, Jesus, you are my prize. Some of you are like, I want to do that, but I just I don't have anything in me to do that. Well, that's done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit lives to help you make Jesus your prize. The Holy Spirit is here right now to make Jesus your prize. So if a worship team, could you come on up? We're going we're gonna to sing a, a Christmas hymn. It's one we don't sing very often, but it's a beautiful one, and it, it's one that reminds us of how Jesus humbled himself and left his throne for us. So this morning, as we sing this, here's the question. If, if Jesus isn't yet your prize, or if you know that you need to renew your commitment to him being your prize, <clears throat> this morning is a morning to say, Jesus, I want to embrace you as my prize. Here I am. Um, take me. Um, and uh, we're going to sing this through, and then I'm going to give a benediction.
So, God, we, we want to walk in the confidence that you walked. We, knew, we know where we came from. We know where we're going. We know you're the one who can bring all things in, under your control. We want to walk in that kind of confidence so that we, like Paul and like you, can limit our power so we can even lose our power even to death because that is no loss. That is only gain for you for us, and for the kingdom. So now I pray this Christmas week, this week where we celebrate the humility of God, go in his grace, go in his love, and go in his power. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.